Chapter 17 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 17. Chase as Chief Justice. Chief Justice Tawney died on the 12th day of October, 1864, during the public rejoicings that hailed the success of the Union Party at the autumnal elections. He was a man of amiable character, of blameless life, of great learning, of stainless integrity. Yet such is the undiscriminating cruelty with which public opinion executes its decrees, that this aged and upright judge was born to his grave with few expressions of regret, and even with a feeling not wholly suppressed, that his removal formed a part of the good news which the autumn had brought to the upholders of the Union. Toilsome and irreproachable as his life had been, so far as purity of intentions were concerned, it was marked by one of those mistakes which are never forgiven. In a critical hour of history, he had made a decision contrary to the spirit of the age, contrary to the best hopes and aspirations of the nation at large. Before he had assumed the grave responsibilities of Chief Justice, he had not been insensible to those emotions and sympathies which animated the majority of his countrymen in later years. So early as 1818 he had spoken of slavery as a blot on our national character, and expressed the confident hope that it would effectually, though gradually, be wiped away. Quote, until it shall be accomplished, until the time shall come when we can point without a blush to the language held in the Declaration of Independence, he said, every friend of humanity will seek to lighten the galling chain of slavery and better to the utmost of his power the wretched condition of the slave. But when he assumed public office, he became a part of the machinery of his party. He accepted its tenets and carried them unflinchingly to their logical result, so that to a mind so upright and straightforward in its operations there seemed nothing revolting in the enunciation of the dismal and inhuman propositions of the Dred Scott decision. His whole life was therefore read in the light of that one act, and when he died the nation he had so faithfully served, according to his lights, looked upon his death as the removal of a barrier to human progress. The general feeling found expression in the grim and profane witticism of Senator Wade, uttered some months before, when it seemed likely that the Chief Justice would survive the administration of Mr. Lincoln. Quote, no man ever prayed as I did that Tawney might outlive James Buchanan's term, and now I am afraid I have overdone it. End quote. The friends of Mr. Chase immediately claimed that the place thus vacated belonged to him. They not only insisted that he was the best fitted of all the public men in the country for the duties of that high office, that the great issues of the war would be safest in his hands, that the rights of the freedmen would be most secure with an ardent and consistent abolitionist, that the national currency would be best cared for by its parent. They also claimed that the place had been promised him by the president, and this claim, though not wholly true, was not without foundation. Several times during the past year or two, the President had intimated in conversation with various friends and Mr. Chase that he thought favorably of appointing him Chief Justice, if a vacancy should occur. These expressions had been faithfully reported to the Secretary, and promptly entered by him in his diary at the time. When Andrew G. Curtin was a candidate for re-election as Governor of Pennsylvania, 
John Cavod came to Mr. Chase and told him if Curtin was elected, he would shape matters in Pennsylvania so as to secure its delegates in the presidential convention, but that the majority of the loyal men in Pennsylvania preferred Mr. Chase. Mr. Chase replied that no speculations as to Governor Curtin's future course could excuse the loyal men from supporting him now, that the future must take care of itself, that he, Mr. Chase, was not anxious for the presidency, that there was but one position in the government which he would really like to have, if it were possible, to have it without any sacrifice of principle or public interest, and that was the chief justiceship. At this, Mr. Cavode expressed himself satisfied, and went away, resolved to permit the renomination of Curtin, which, it may be said in passing, he could have done nothing to prevent. Mr. Chase's eyes seemed pretty constantly fixed upon the bench in the intervals of his presidential aspirations. For a few days after his resignation, his feelings against the president were of such bitterness that he seems to have given up that prospect. He was on the verge of open revolt from the party with which he had been so long associated. In his diary of the 6th of July, he wrote, quote, Pomeroy says he means to go on a buffalo hunt and then to Europe. He cannot support Lincoln, but won't desert his principles. I am much of the same sentiments, though not willing now to decide what duty may demand next. Pomeroy remarked that, on the news of my resignation reaching the Senate, several of the Democratic senators came to him and said, will go with you now for chase. This meant nothing but a vehement desire to overthrow the existing administration, but might mean much if the Democrats would only cut loose from slavery and go for freedom and the protection of labor by a national currency. If they would do that, I would cheerfully go for any man they might nominate." A few days later, he wrote recounting his efforts for the public good, and added, quote, My efforts were stoutly resisted outside, and had not earnest sympathy inside of the administration. They were steadily prevailing, however, when a sense of duty to myself and the country also compelled me to resign. A few malignant opponents of Mr. Lincoln still continued to write to Mr. Chase, and to keep alive in his mind the fancy of a possible nomination to the presidency. His weakness before the people had been signally shown by an ill-judged attempt to secure him the nomination for Congress in Cincinnati, but in spite of this he still responded readily to suggestions from factious partisans. To one, writing from Michigan, he replied that he was now a private citizen and expected to remain such. Quote, no one, he said, has been authorized to use my name in any political connection, except that I said I should not feel at liberty to refuse my services to the citizens of my congressional district, if spontaneously and unanimously demanded. I think now that I erred in saying this, but it seemed right at the time. No such movement as the one you suggest seems to me expedient, so far as I am concerned. Whether it would be expedient or patriotic in reference to some other name, I am not able to judge. I see only, as all see, that there is a deplorable lack of harmony caused chiefly, in my judgment, by the injudicious course of some of Mr. Lincoln's chief advisers and his own action on their advice. Even to comparative strangers he could not write without speaking slightingly of the president. He kept up this habit to the end of Lincoln's life. To one, he said, quote, I fear our good president is so anxious for the restoration of the Union that he will not care sufficiently about the basis of representation. End quote. To another, with a singular and unusual lack of dignity, he said, quote, 
Some seem to think that a man who has handled millions must be rich, and so I should be if I could have retained for myself even one percent of what I saved to the people, but I would not exchange the consciousness of having kept my hands free from the touch of one cent of public treasure for all the riches in the world. End quote. Mr. Chase was, of course, absolutely and unquestionably honest, but that virtue is not so rare in public men that one should celebrate it in himself. He passed the heat of the midsummer in the White Mountains. During his absence, his tone of bitter and sullen comment towards the president and his associates in the cabinet continued, but after the fall of Atlanta and the evident response of the country to the Chicago nominations, his tone underwent a sudden change. He announced himself at last in favor of the election of Mr. Lincoln. In his diary of the 17th of September, after he had returned to Washington, he said, quote, I have seen the president twice. His manner was cordial, and so were his words, and I hear of nothing but good will from him. But he is not at all demonstrative, either in speech or manner. I feel that I do not know him, and I found no action on what he says or does. It is my conviction that the cause I love and the general interests of the country will be best promoted by his re-election, and I have resolved to join my efforts to those of almost the whole body of my friends in securing it." He continues in his usual tone of self-portraiture, I have been told that the President said he and I could not get along together in the Cabinet. Doubtless there was a difference of temperament, and on some points of judgment I may have been too earnest and eager, while I thought him not earnest enough and too slow. On some occasions, indeed, I found that it was so. But I never desired anything else than his complete success, and never indulged a personal feeling incompatible with absolute fidelity to his administration. He repeats over and over again in his letters and diaries that he never really desired the presidency, that he seized the first opportunity of withdrawing from the canvas. From Washington he went to Ohio, where he brought himself at last to make an open declaration of his preference for Mr. Lincoln as against McClellan. He voted for the Republican ticket at the election in October, and sent a telegram to the president that the result was, quote, all right in Ohio and Indiana, end quote. The death of Chief Justice Taney occurred immediately afterwards, and the canvass for a successor on the part of the friends of Mr. Chase began without a moment's delay. Mr. Sumner was particularly ardent and pressing. Quote, a Chief Justice is needed, he wrote to the President, whose position on the slavery question is already fixed and will not need argument of counsel to convert him. End quote. A mass of solicitations of the same character came in upon the President, and they were reinforced inside the Cabinet by the earnest influence of Mr. Fessenden and Mr. Stanton, and although these and other friends of Mr. Chase were so strongly encouraged by Mr. Lincoln's response that they had no hesitation in assuring him that he would without doubt be made Chief Justice, the President gave no decided intimation of his purpose. It is altogether probable that he intended from the first to appoint him, but he resolved at the same time to say nothing about it until he was ready to act. He said to his secretary, I shall be very shut pan about this matter. When one day his secretary brought him a letter from Mr. Chase in Ohio, he said, What is it about? Simply a kind and friendly letter, the secretary answered. Mr. Lincoln, without reading it, replied with his shrewd smile, File it with his other recommendations. 
So reticent was Mr. Lincoln in regard to his purpose that the enemies of Mr. Chase, who were especially abundant and active in Ohio, endeavored to prevent his nomination by the presentation of strong and numerously signed protests against it. The president received them, not too affably, and while he listened respectfully to all they had to say in regard to the merits of the case, he sternly checked them when they began to repeat instances of Mr. Chase's personal hostility to himself. He treated with the same contempt a more serious statement which he had received from New York, that Mr. Sisko, who had personally declared for McClellan, gave as his reason for such a course that Secretary Chase had told him that Mr. Lincoln was incompetent and unfit for the position he held, though he added that Mr. Chase, on his return to Washington, had informed him that he then considered it his public duty to support Mr. Lincoln for the presidency. Strangely enough, from the Treasury Department itself came an earnest protest against the late Secretary. The Venerable Joseph J. Lewis, Commissioner of Internal Revenue, protested that he was not a man of large legal or financial knowledge, that his selfishness had gradually narrowed and contracted his view of things in general, that he was amazingly ignorant of men, that it was the opinion in the department that he really desired, towards the end of his term of office, to injure, and as far as possible, to destroy the influence and popularity of the administration. By his constant denunciation of the extravagance of disbursements, and his tone of malevolent comment against every act of the president, he clearly indicated his desire to excite popular discontent and grumbling against the government. Judge Lewis said that, with the exception of a few sycophants, the entire department was relieved by the change. Even M. B. Field, for whose sake he gave up his place, expressed himself as gratified by it. To all these representations, Mr. Lincoln made no reply. He was equally silent as to the merits of other distinguished jurists whose names were mentioned to him. He had the highest esteem and regard for William M. Everts, he had great confidence in the legal learning and weight of character of Justice Swain. He had a feeling of hearty friendship for Montgomery Blair, and although he had thought proper in the preceding autumn to ask for the latter's resignation, the intimate and even affectionate relations which he maintained towards the ex-postmaster general encouraged him and his friends to believe that he would receive the appointment. The late Vice President Wilson, shortly before his death, said that Blair met him one day near the War Department and solicited his good word, saying that Chase would certainly not be nominated. Wilson was startled by Blair's confident tone and went at once to the President, to whom he reiterated the arguments already used in favor of Mr. Chase's nomination, saying that the President could well afford to overlook the harsh and indecorous things which Chase had said of him during the summer. Quote, Oh, as to that, replied Lincoln, I care nothing. Of Mr. Chase's ability and of his soundness on the general issues of the war, there is, of course, no question. I have only one doubt about his appointment. He is a man of unbounded ambition, and has been working all his life to become president. That he can never be, and I fear that if I make him chief justice, he will simply become more restless and uneasy and neglect the place in his strife and intrigue to make himself president. If I were sure that he would go on the bench and give up his aspirations and do nothing but make himself a great judge, I would not hesitate a moment. End quote. So strong was this impression upon Mr. Lincoln's mind that he half formed the intention of sending for Mr. Chase and saying frankly to him that the way was open to him to become the greatest chief justice the Supreme Court had ever had if he would dismiss at once and forever the subject of the presidency from his mind. 
but speaking on the subject with Senator Sumner, he saw in a moment's conversation how liable to misapprehension such action would be. In his eagerness to do what he thought best for the interests of both Mr. Chase and the country, he lost sight for an instant of the construction which Mr. Chase would inevitably place upon such a proposition coming from his twice-successful rival. Convinced as he was of Chase's great powers, and hoping, rather against his own convictions, that once upon the bench he would see in what direction his best prospects of usefulness and fame rested, he concluded to take all risks, and on the 6th of December nominated him to the Senate for Chief Justice. He communicated his intention to no one, and wrote out the nomination in full with his own hand. It was confirmed at once without reference to a committee. Mr. Chase, on reaching home the night of the same day, was saluted at his door under his new title by his daughter, Mrs. Sprague. He at once sent the President a note, saying, quote, Before I sleep, I must thank you for this mark of your confidence, and especially for the manner in which the nomination was made. I will never forget either, and I trust you will never regret either. Be assured that I prize your confidence and goodwill more than any nomination to office." End quote. The appointment was received with the greatest satisfaction throughout the Union. Although the name of Mr. Chase had been especially pressed upon the President by the public men who represented the most advanced anti-slavery sentiment of the North, the appointment, when once made, met with little opposition from any quarter. Mr. Chase, in a long life of political prominence and constant controversy, had won the universal respect of the country not only for his abilities, but also for his courage, his integrity, and a certain solid weight of character of which his great head and massive person seemed a fitting embodiment. He had placed his portrait on the lower denominations of the legal tender notes, saying with his customary heavy pleasantry, quote, I had put the president's head on the higher-priced notes, and my own, as was becoming, on the smaller ones, end quote. His handsome face and features had thus become more familiar in the eyes of the people than those of any other man in America, and though neither then nor at any other period of his life did he become what could be called universally popular, the image of him became fixed in the general instinct as a person of serious importance in the national life. The people who gave themselves the trouble to reason about the matter said it was impossible that an original abolitionist should be untrue to the principles of freedom, or that the father of the national currency should ever disown his own offspring, while those who thought and spoke on impulse took it for granted that such a man as Mr. Chase should never for any length of time be out of the highest employment. After all, the fears of the President in regard to the Chief Justice were better founded than his hopes. Mr. Chase took his place on the bench with a conscientious desire to do his whole duty in his great office, to devote his undoubted powers and his prodigious industry to making himself a worthy successor to the great jurists who before him had illustrated the bench, but he could not discharge the political affairs of the country from his mind. He still considered himself called upon to counteract the mischievous tendencies of the President towards reconciliation and hasty reconstruction. His slighting references to him in his letters and diaries continued from the hour he took his place on the bench. When the fighting had ended around Richmond, and on the capitulation of Lee, the fabric of the Southern Confederacy had fallen about the ears of its framers like a house of cards, the Chief Justice felt himself called on to come at once to the front, and he wrote from Baltimore to the President, quote, I am very anxious about the future, 
and most about the principles which are to govern reconstruction for as these principles are sound or unsound so will be the work and its results you have no time to read a long letter nor have i time to write one so i will be brief and first as to virginia end quote. he advised the president to stand by the pierpoint government as to the other rebel states, he suggested the enrollment of the loyal citizens without regard to complexion. Quote, this, you know, he said, has long been my opinion. The application of this principle to Louisiana is made somewhat difficult by the organization which has already taken place, but happily the Constitution authorizes the legislature to extend the right of suffrage. What reaches me of the condition of things in Louisiana impresses me strongly with the belief that this extension will be of the greatest benefit to the whole population. He advised as to Arkansas an amendment to the Constitution or a new convention, the members to be elected by the loyal citizens without distinction of color. Quote, to all the other states, he continued, the general principle may be easily applied. End quote. He closed by saying, quote, I most respectfully but most earnestly commend these matters to your attention. God gives you a great place and a great opportunity. May he guide you in the use of them. End quote. But the same day, the President delivered from the window of the White House that final speech to the people which he had prepared without waiting for the instructions of the Chief Justice, and the day after, Mr. Chase wrote again from Baltimore, reviewing the record of both reminding the president of his former errors from which Mr. Chase had tried to save him, discussing in full the Louisiana case, of which the president had made so masterly and luminous a presentation in his speech, insinuating that if the president were only as well informed as he, he would see things very differently. Footnote. Quote, I most earnestly wish you could have read the New Orleans papers for the past few months. Your duties have not allowed it. I have read them a great deal, quite enough to be certain that if you had read what I have, your feelings of humanity and justice would not let you rest till all loyalists are made equal in the right of self-protection by suffrage. Chase to Lincoln, April 12, 1865. Shucker's Life of S.P. Chase, page 517. Almost before the ink was dry on this unasked and superfluous sermon, the President was dead. The Chief Justice, writing to a friend in Ohio, said, quote, The schemes of politicians will now adjust themselves to the new conditions. I want no part in them. End quote. He retained his attitude at the head of the extreme Republicans until about the time of the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Over this famous trial, he presided with the greatest dignity and impartiality, with a knowledge of the law which was never at fault, and with a courage which rose superior to all the threats and all the entreaties of his friends but his action during the trial, and its result, alienated him at once from the great body of those who had been his strongest supporters, while it created a momentary appearance of popularity among his lifelong opponents. His friends began to persuade him, and he began to think, that he might be the candidate of the Democratic Party for the presidency. He commenced writing voluminous letters to leading Democrats, expressing his indifference to the nomination, but at the same time saying he had always been a Democrat, was a Democrat still, and that the course which the democracy ought to adopt would be to embrace true democratic principles and declare for universal suffrage in the reconstruction of the Union. He did not flinch for an instant from his position on this important question. He said, quote, I believe I could refuse the throne of the world if it were offered me at the price of abandoning the cause of equal rights and exact justice to all men. End quote. 
Following his inveterate habit of taking a subjective view of the world of politics, he thought it possible that the Democratic Party might be converted in the twinkling of an eye by virtue of his broad and liberal views. He cherished this pleasant delusion for several months. Whenever an obscure politician called upon him or wrote to him from some remote corner of the country, expressing a desire that he should be the Democratic candidate for the presidency, he would say, quote, such indications afford ground for hope that a change is going on in the views and policy of the Democratic Party, which warrants good hopes of the future. Unquote. There was for a moment a vague impression among the leading Democrats that as it was hopeless to make a campaign with one of their own party against the overwhelming popularity of General Grant, it might be worthwhile to try the experiment of nominating the Chief Justice with the hope of diverting a portion of the Republican vote and a correspondence took place between August Belmont and Mr. Chase in relation to that subject. Mr. Chase wrote, quote, For more than a quarter of a century I have been, in my political views and sentiments, a Democrat, and I still think that upon questions of finance, commerce, and administration generally, the old Democratic principles afford the best guidance. End quote. But he stoutly asserted, even in the face of this temptation, his belief in universal suffrage, though he coupled it with universal amnesty, and said, quote, If the white citizens hitherto prominent in affairs will simply recognize their, the Negroes, right of suffrage, and assure them against further attempts to take it from them, I am sure that those citizens will be welcomed back to their old lead with joy and acclamation. A majority, if not all the southern states, may be carried for the Democratic candidates at the next election, end quote. He repeated this sanguine statement in his correspondence with other leading Democrats, but the negotiation came to nothing. The Democratic Convention met in New York, and Mr. Chase's name, mentioned by accident, gained a roar of cheers from the Assembly and one half of one vote from a California delegate. He professed his entire indifference to the results and took no further interest in the canvass. An injudicious Republican politician in New York asked him to address a Grant meeting. He declined, of course, stating that he could not unreservedly support the Republican ticket, and that this was not the time for discrimination in a public address. Quote, the action of the two parties has obliged me to resume with my old faith my old position, that of Democrat, by the grace of God, free and independent. End quote. When his old enemy, General Blair, came to the front in the progress of the canvass, and rather overshadowed the more conservative Seymour, the Chief Justice intimated that men of his way of thinking would be constrained to the support of General Grant. But if the political attitude of Mr. Chase in his later years was a subject of amazement and sorrow to his ardent supporters, his decisions upon the bench were a no less startling surprise to those who had insisted upon his appointment as the surest means of conserving all the victories of the war. He who had sustained Mr. Stanton in his most energetic and daring acts during the war now declared such acts illegal. He who had continually criticized, not always loyally, the conduct of the President for what he considered his weak reverence for the rights of states now became the earnest champion of states' rights. And finally, the man to whose personal solicitations a majority of Congress had yielded in passing the Legal Tender Act, without which he said that the war could not have been successfully carried on, from his place on the bench declared the act unconstitutional. 
but so firm was the impression in the minds of the people of the United States of the great powers and perfect integrity, the high courage, the exalted patriotism of this man, that when he died, worn out by his tireless devotion to the public welfare, he was mourned and praised as, in spite of all errors and infirmities, he deserved to be. Although his appointment had not accomplished all the good which Mr. Lincoln hoped for when he made it, it cannot be called a mistake. Mr. Chase had deserved well of the Republic. He was entitled to any reward the Republic could grant him, and the President, in giving to his most powerful and most distinguished rival, the greatest place which a President ever has it in his power to bestow, gave an exemplary proof of the magnanimity and generosity of his own spirit. End of chapter 17 Recording by Owen Cook in Pottawatomie, Seated Land